0: Welcome to the Unstoppable Freedom Podcast, I'm Jimmy Page. Today we're gonna take a a look at a topic that I'm very passionate about, the moral and religious foundation on which America was built. Our founders, our history, our values, and even our very constitutional structure is under attack from just about every direction. Specifically, we're gonna tackle our undeniable Judeo-Christian roots, the significant contributions and commitments from black Americans and other minorities to the American success story, and the role of the church in restoring and revitalizing our culture. Our guest today is an expert in these areas. His name is David Barton. David is the founder of Wall Builders, uh, an organization dedicated to presenting Americans' forgotten history and heroes to energize people at the local level to become involved in strengthening their communities, their state, and the nation. David's a sought after speaker bringing the truth of America's history to churches, civic and military groups, schools and universities, and community events. He's also the author of several best-selling books and is the foremost authority on American history today. David, welcome to the show. Hey, Jimmy, good to be with you. Thanks for having me, man. You bet. Well, I had the opportunity to uh, see you speak at a faith and freedom event in Fort Collins, way up here in Colorado, a long way from Texas, uh, a few weeks ago. And I left with uh, a renewed love and appreciation for American liberty, uh, good. your presentation. Yeah, your presentation of the inspiring stories of our founding and history was incredible. Uh, As we start, tell us where the name of your organization, Wall Builders, comes from.
1: Uh, Wall Builders comes from the Bible book of Nehemiah, and it deals with the concept that in Israel's history, they had been a great nation, really significant, and over time, they got kind of sloppy and lazy, and some things came in that weren't good for the nation, ended up really kind of destroying them temporarily, knocked them down. And so the enemy came in, destroyed a lot of their infrastructure, destroyed a lot of who they had been, the things that made them great. And they go into a period of captivity. And then a period, after a period of time, they come out and said, hey, let's, let's give this another try and get back to our foundations. And so Wall Builders is built on the concept of Nehemiah, who got the people together and he said, come, let's rebuild. That will no longer be a reproach. And it was specifically mm-hmm. rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, back in that oh. era of world history. If you didn't have a wall around your city, you were open to anything, you had no protection. And so it really is restoring mm-hmm. the strength of the nation, rebuilding the things that have made us great, rebuilding rebuilding the things that have made us unique. And so mm-hmm. we try to get people involved in the grassroots level in doing what was done in the book of Nehemiah, where that it wasn't professional people that rebuilt it. It was, you look at, I mean, they're literally laying stones But there is a perfume maker, there's a soldier, there's an apothecary, (laughs) there's a man and his daughters, there's everybody under the sun. And they were all shocked that when everybody got involved, it didn't take them that long to get things turned around. And that's really kind of the message we see is that we could get Americans engaged and involved and off the sideline, we could turn things pretty quick. And that's why we like the the story of the book of Nehemiah
0: Wall Builders. I love that. I got to tell you, that story is one of my favorites. But one of the things that you mentioned it sounds a lot like today, actually, doesn't it? I mean, today, this doesn't, this seems all too familiar, actually, a little bit too close to home. But what I love about that story is that every single person was responsible for their area, for the, the section of the wall where they lived. In fact, I think at that time they lived in the wall or inside of the wall and they were all responsible. And if I remember the story right, I think they rebuilt the wall in 52 days. Does that, does that sound right?
1: Yeah, 52 days is really interesting because some people did a lot, some people didn't do a lot, but they all did something. Uh, it's, mm. it's interesting. Uh, it said the priest probably did the least. The priest only rebuilt their own homes and their homes adjoined the wall. And so the outside wall of your house was part of the wall of the city that protected the city. It said the men of Tokoa went through and built 1,500 meters. You know, that's 1,700 wow. feet or whatever. And it said the priests only rebuilt their own home on the house. Well, at least they got something done. And so yeah. when everybody did something, whether it was a little or whether it was a lot, and it's not like they were trained for this, it's not like any of them were professional stone layers or masons, <laughs> Right. And when they all did something, even if it's just a little bit like the priest, or even if it's a lot like the men of Toccoa, you put it all together and it makes a huge difference. And I really do think yeah. that's where we are today. Uh, you don't have to do a lot, but you gotta do something. And, and if you just do mm. something, get outside your comfort zone a little bit, just pick up yes. some project,
0: rebuild something, it's gonna make a huge difference. Yeah. I think you're right. And I think we're seeing that right. I think there's a a real resurgence from the grassroots level. And I know, I know a lot of what you're teaching is that personal responsibility. And I think you know, those are principles that our founders built the built our nation on in in the original days. And um, one of the interesting things in my experience with you has been my first exposure to your work was with the founders Bible. Tell us a little bit about that project and why it's so important even today.
1: Yeah, a number of years ago, um, the Lachman Foundation who, they're the ones that did the uh, New American Standard Bible, they said, hey, we're going to do a reprint of the New American Standard Bible and would love for you to do the commentary on it. And I said, well, wow. you really don't want my commentary, but I know some <coughs> commentary might be pretty good on it. And so at that point, we had gathered more than 100,000 documents, original American history documents from founding era, et cetera, prior to 1812. And what we mm. had seen in going back through those old documents was how often That they cited scripture for the basis of particular policies Uh, for example john adams i was shocked when i was reading one of his letters and turned out he did this in four letters where he quoted jeremiah 17 9 and said this is the reason we did separation of powers between the three branches because a lot of a lot of nations had three branches but not Mm -hmm. many nations had separation of powers till america did it and that check and balance thing was unique and so he cites that bible verse and I looked it up and thought, that's interesting. I don't think I would have immediately thought of that. And then I find George Washington cites it and Madison cites it and Alexander Hamilton cites it and you go, my gosh, they're, they're thinking about biblical stuff here. And then I started seeing that in so many areas. Uh, when, mm. when Ben Franklin founded the first hospital in America, 1751, he actually used Luke 1035 wow. as the reason he did that. And so as, as we went through their writings, we found them citing the Bible for so many specific things. A guy named James Kent, who we call the father of American jurisprudence, helped start the judicial system of America. The reason mm-hmm. we have circuit courts, he said, is out of 1 Samuel 7 verses 15 and 16. Look it up and go, hey, you know, that it really is there. I had never seen that. So what we did mm-hmm. for Lotman was write articles showing historical usage of Bible verses, to create aspects of society, whether it was healthcare, whether it was free market or business Mm -hmm. or or morals or education, or just the way we treat one another, manners. Uh, And and that's what we did. I think there's about 260 articles in that Bible that cite historical incidents and go back to specific Bible verses that they used for why that particular event or policy or practice occurred. And that's a little bit about the Founders Bible. So it's done real well, but we find it to be a really practical Bible because for whatever Mm -hmm. reason, Um, I've been involved in 13 cases of the US Supreme Court, but I look back to Mm -hmm. 1962, 63, where the court took a position. And and at that time they said, you know, we've had prayer and Bible in schools for 300 plus years in America. And we've had Mm -hmm. it for 175 years under the constitution, but it's just time to do something new. And so they said that without historical or legal precedent, they took prayer and Bible out of America. And then they gave us what was called the lemon test. And since then we've just mm. been a pretty secular nation and we've had this mentality of here's the spiritual stuff and here's the, the, the political stuff or the yeah. the government stuff or whatever we, we've compartmentalized. And that yeah. compartmentalization has, has been a real problem. Uh, and yeah. so as a result, when we read the Bible today, we don't think of looking at it as an economic book. We don't think of looking at it as an employee handbook or a guidebook mm-hmm. or a book that deals with consanguinity or due process or anything else. And yet they did. They saw it very practically. Yeah. So for us, we see it's that amazing. as a way to really get faith practical and relevant again the way it used to be and not mm-hmm. compartmentalize the way the courts have told us to do it since
0: the 1960s. It's amazing, you know. I was thinking as I'm as I'm reading through the Bible. Of course, you've got the power of the Scripture as a standalone, but mm-hmm. all of the insets and all of the stories of our founding fathers of those early days and the reliance on Scripture. I mean, you just mentioned three or four examples that I I don't didn't even know, and uh, it does show you that that our roots are really deeply rooted in the Judeo Christian tradition and and that belief system. But unfortunately, many people today will say that we're not a Christian nation. Now, I, I understand what some people mean by that. They mean that we're, you know, that there are limits to that interaction. And, you know, they they quote the separation of church and state, which of course doesn't appear in any of our documents. But many say that we're not a Christian nation. Talk a little bit though. Let's talk a little bit more about our founding idea, our founding ideals, our those founding documents and how they relied heavily. On principles of faith found in the Bible
1: yeah you know it's interesting I've, I've been this week I got hit with a really big national news story where that you know I, I claim there's no separation church and state and I'm trying to put all that aside etc and the problem they've got is I do say that America's a Christian nation but it's not that I said that I quote that from over 300 court cases Three U.S. Supreme Court decisions, two unanimous Supreme Court decisions declaring America to be a Christian nation and cited by hundreds of state and federal courts after that and before that. So it's not like I came up with this. I'm just (laughs) saying what we all used to say for Mm. really until the 1960s. So this is what we said as late as 1952, U.S. Supreme Court still still saying this. So wow. now that I'm saying something that we said for 350 years, but we haven't said in the last 50, 60 years, I'm the crazy guy in the room. But you have wow. to go back and, and say, how do you define that? Because when the Supreme mm. Court gave an 8-0 decision in 1892, saying America is a Christian nation, the justice who wrote that decision, uh, that, that penned the, the majority decision, well, it wasn't majority, it was unanimous decision for the court, uh, David Brewer, he said, you know, I've had a lot of questions about that since that. People are wondering, what is a Christian nation? He said, so. Let me just kind of give it to you. And he wrote a book in 1905 mm. on what is a Christian nation, and he said a Christian nation is not one in which you have to be Christians to be there, or you have to belong to a church to be there, or you have to be believe in God to be there. He said a Christian mm. nation is one that used Christianity to shape its institutions and its culture, and that really is wow. the definition of a Christian nation. And so when you look at that, you take something like, well, this is under attack today, but take the free market system. Now I say it's yeah. under attack because right now. 75 polling shows 75% of college students want to get rid of the free market and go to socialism and 48% of millennials want to get rid of the free market and go to socialism. But the free market system has made America the most prosperous nation in the history of the world, the most stable mm. nation in the history of the world. So when you look at, at where we are with free market, it's a good system. Now, the question is yeah. where it come from? So we have these university professors that'll take, uh, Adam Smith, wealth of nations and say, this is where the free market mm. came from. Actually. We had free market businesses running in 1626 and 1627, mm-hmm. actually, in Massachusetts, Massachusetts, and it came out of the Bible. Mm-hmm. You, you find the first iteration of this was when in the Jamestown colony when they pointed to 2 mm-hmm. Thessalonians 3.10 as the reason they're getting away from socialism. The pilgrims came here as socialists, and they got away from it. Their governor said, hey, 1 Timothy 5.8 is what got us off socialism. And then as you look over the next several years, you'll find particularly Matthew 20, uh, Luke 19 and Matthew 25. But those are five Bible verses that mm-hmm. built the free market economic system. It wasn't Adam Smith. Adam Smith is 150 Amazing. years late on this system. You know, America had this wow. before he did. And, and there are just mm-hmm. so many practical aspects, um, even the thing of, of why you avoid a, a federal debt or a national debt or even a personal debt. You know, what you mm-hmm. have is, is Proverbs 22.6. Founding Fathers talked about that on why you stay out of debt. And so there's hmm. so many economic policies that we don't deal with, uh, the concept of individual, uh, individuals negotiating their own employment contract. Jesus covered that. Jesus hmm. covered in Matthew 20, he covered the minimum wage. You know, what <laughs> Christian today has ever thought about Jesus covering the minimum wage. So Never. there's so much back there that really has made us unique. And we, we just have not been as practical as previous generations have been with the Bible. And that goes Mm. to number one, a Bible literacy that we have, but also a lack of knowledge of our own history that we have. And we've thought we've been a great nation because we've been a secular nation. That's just not the case. So, you know, a Christian nation, it just means that Mm. we use the Bible to shape and build our our policy and our institutions. And you know what? You may not believe in God and you may be an atheist, but you benefit from that free market economic system. And you may not, believe in God, you may be an atheist, but you benefit from that healthcare system that came out of, uh, out of mm-hmm. Luke 1035, as, as Ben Franklin pointed to. So there's so many things where people benefit yep. from that. And that's what made us a Christian nation. And now critics today mm-hmm. who are largely themselves anti-Christian, at least non-Christian, mm-hmm. but often anti-Christian, they've given a definition that it means a theocracy. I'm trying to set up a theocracy. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to say that if you're not a Christian, you get no civil rights. No, I'm just repeating mm-hmm. what the courts have repeated over that period of time. And And really just looking up online that 1905 book about a Christian nation by David Brewer, it's worth reading just to get a dose of history and how we used to look at this
0: issue from from back in the day for three centuries. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I mean, what would happen today if elected officials, if politicians used scripture in the way that you just mentioned? I mean, it would be it would be blasphemy, it would, it would be an uproar, wouldn't it? I mean, could they get away with even suggesting that any aspect of America be linked to some kind of religious scripture? You know, you just asked a very revealing question, Jimmy. It's,
1: it's really interesting you say that. And I would answer it somewhat with an answer that Ben Franklin gave. And Ben Franklin was talking to uh, Reverend uh, Samuel Cooper. And he's out of Boston and he's talking. And Franklin had been diplomat overseas in England and France and elsewhere for us. And he was talking to Reverend Cooper about the differences between America and Europe. And mm. one of the things we do a lot, we right now we've got uh, next door to us in the classroom. It's where I just was. But in the summer, we have one week classes for young people 18 through 25, and we take them through a lot of the apologetics of America on on faith, Mm -hmm. on morality, on religion, on the free market, on American exceptionalism, on all these things. And we're surrounded here now with 160,000 items from American history, so we can let you hold the things we're talking about. And one of the things we'll do is we'll pull up out of the Constitutional Convention, Franklin's famous speech from Thursday, June the 28th of 1787 It was a speech that kind of brought the convention back to unity again and so Mm. we'll just read that speech it's 14 sentences long and we'll just kind of ask folks anything stand out to you about that good speech well (laughs) we show them where franklin directly quoted from 18 from 14 bible verses that speech is made up of 14 bible verses now nobody recognizes that's a bible verse and that's where i think it's interesting what franklin Uh, wrote to to Dr. Cooper, Minister Cooper, he said, you know, he said, when I'm in America, I never have to tell people that I'm quoting the Bible because everybody knows the Bible so well they recognize it. He said, but when I speak in Europe, when I'm speaking to a group in France or in England, I have to tell them what I'm quoting the Bible because they don't recognize it. They don't know it. Well, America is kind of like England, and Europe was then. So you could be a political guy and quote the Bible all day long, and 99 of people won't recognize you're quoting the Bible. So you could quote the Bible and say, "Hey, we ought to do whatever on economics and quote the Bible." And if you didn't say it was the Bible, most people wouldn't know it. They say, "Oh, that's a really good idea." And if you came back and said, yeah, I quoted a Bible verse, then you'd get beat up. But, you know, yeah. we're, we're so biblically illiterate that, that at ah. this point you could get away with doing all sorts of stuff. If you didn't tell people where it came from, they
0: think it's a really good idea until their bias kicked in. It's crazy. And and you're exactly right. Right. Just, just remove the reference, but keep the principles. I guess yeah. that's what what worked in Europe. You know, I think today we we need to tell people where it comes from again. Go go a little bit further back, even into our founding documents, because you know there's a lot of talk about were our founders were they Deists were they Christians you know what what was their religious background is there are there indications about their religious background the founding fathers um, and how did that inform the Declaration of Independence how did that inform the Constitution what is what did how did that work its way out uh, a great question
1: and and when you let me say up front. It's not hard to know the answer to this. And the guys are pulling some books for me and and some uh, papers, (laughs) proclamations, et cetera. But first off, understand that the founders Mm. did in writing what we do with cameras and tapes and VCRs. So Mm. the founding fathers themselves wrote everything down. We can look back to 1647 and tell you what the menu was at Harvard University for that day. We can tell you who the professors were, who were in their classes, how many they had in class. We can tell you virtually anything. This is why george mm. washington has nearly a hundred volumes of writings recorded writings wow. uh franklin and jefferson and madison and hamilton all those guys 60 to 100 mm. volumes each because they wrote it all down i think I think washington wrote over forty thousand letters by hand it's, it's just amazing they, they wrote everything wow. down they kept journals they kept diaries so mm. it's easy to know what they think about faith because they write about it and there's only mm. one founding father and let me kind of define founding fathers so we know what we're talking mm-hmm. about founding fathers sure. are those that are influential in the birth development and establishment as a, of america as an independent nation so if you mm. were key in helping us be born become established as an independent nation your founding father so we would take the 56 mm. signers of the declaration of independence say those are founding fathers we mm. would take the 55 who wrote the co- constitution say those are founding fathers we would take the 90 who did the bill of rights which is the capstone of the constitution and say those are founding fathers so when you put them all together you got maybe 200 250 founding fathers and And just nearly all of them have extensive writings. Some have very few Mm -hmm. writings. Some of the writings were destroyed in the civil war as certain courthouses burned or whatever. I think Mm -hmm. um, Samuel Chase and and PACA, two guys from Maryland, the courthouses there burned at some point, so we don't have their papers, but we've got so many. Mm -hmm. And as you look at these 200, 250 founding fathers, there's only one founding father that we've ever found who called himself a deist. And that was Mm -hmm. Ben Franklin. And it's in his autobiography, and on the same page, he says, but I quickly abandoned that when I saw how unproductive it was. So he's a deist <laughs> for like a fourth of a page, and that's it. And you'll find Amazing. today professors say, oh, look, Franken says he's a deist. Yeah, and on the same page, he talks about how dumb an idea that was. And he, it's like when he was 15 <laughs> years old, and he got away from that really quick. And so now all the founding fathers are atheists and agnostics and deists. On what basis? On one guy? Because when you look at the rest of them, it's really, really different. I'll just pull out something here. Mm -hmm. This happens to be this little thing right here. This is the first family Bible done in America. This is actually by signer of the Declaration of Independence, John Witherspoon. He trained one-third of the founding fathers, and this guy is the man most responsible for the economic policies in the U.S. Constitution. That's his Bible. Uh, Here's one from Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush. John Adams said, of the three most notable founding fathers, he said, you got George Washington, Ben Franklin, and Benjamin Rush. So he's one of the top three most notable founding fathers. This is his Bible. Uh, this is wow. one of the rarest Bibles done in America, or done in the world, actually. It was the first Bible printed in English in America. It's printed by the printer of the U.S. Congress. It's printed in 1782. Uh, hey, guys, would you hand me a bunch of proclamations, too, some of those paper proclamations we got? This is in 1782. And it's got an endorsement in the front of it from Congress. It says that the Congress recommend this edition of the Bible to the inhabitants of the United States. And also in there, you find out that the Memorial to Congress said that this Bible is quote, a neat edition of the Holy Scripture for the use of schools. So this Bible was done and is endorsed by Congress for the use of schools. And then we've got things like this, this little two volume set. This is from Francis Hopkinson. This is his personal Bible. Uh, Francis was a signer oh, yeah. of the Declaration. He is the guy who was helped fund uh, the American Revolution Treasurer. He designed the seal for the, the, treasury of the United States Treasury Department. He also was a federal judge put on the court by George Washington, but he's a church music director and choir leader, and he did the first purely American hymn book. He set the mm-hmm. 150 Psalms to music, but this is his personal Bible right here. Uh, there's wow. just a lot of other things here. I'll pull out one. I think maybe you can read the top of that. If I get it over there, John Hancock, right? See John Hancock? This is one of 22 times that he called the state of Massachusetts to prayer. So one of 22 times he has prayer in Massachusetts, and it's a day of public fasting, humiliation, and prayer. And what's he got the state of Massachusetts praying and fasting for? He says here, he says, um, we want to implore the divine forgiveness through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Savior, That sounds kind of evangelical, you know? Wow. See, we've got, (laughs) by the time you get to 1815, there were 1400 of of these government issued proclamations. Uh, This Mm. is a proclamation from John Adams, signer of the declaration, second president of the United States. Uh, This is a proclamation from Samuel Huntington. He's a signer of the declaration as well. He's the governor of Connecticut. This Mm. is a prayer proclamation from Oliver Wolcott, signer of the declaration. He is the governor of, um, let's see, this is New Hampshire, I believe. This is a proclamation from John Langdon. He's a signer of the Constitution. He's New Hampshire. I, I mean, you just read the prayer proclamations, I mean, and <laughs> they sound stronger than most preachers I'm used to today. And oh, yeah. I, we've got hundreds of these, hundreds of these. It's, and it's so amazing. doesn't matter. That doesn't keep academics from saying, oh, no, no, they were all a bunch of atheists, agnostics, deists. They didn't want religion in public life really that's amazing what do you do with all these actual documents so that's a long answer to your short question but that's why we have the originals it's pretty hard yes. to lose an argument when you can pull out the originals and show the originals kind of well professors well you're you're just not trained in history how trained do you have to be to read a document you know come on <laughs> yeah, exactly that's, that's not a hard thing so, so it, it really is kind of humorous to, to see them kind of scramble for cover but this is again why it's really important in our history we would have a whole different yes. view of ourselves if we really knew who we were and that, that includes, you know, if we knew how many black heroes we were, if we knew, yes, uh, just an example, we're told it's a bunch of white guys who founded the nation. It's a bunch of white guys who fought for America, but yeah, timeout. George Washington had 76 generals in the American war for independence. Mm. 28 of them came from foreign nations. We have a poster over here that was done right at the end of the American revolution and it's called Washington and his generals, except, It's all his foreign generals and it went all over Europe because you had Lithuanian generals and you had Polish generals and you had Scottish generals and you had all these generals, French generals all over the world. I mean, we were a melting pot back then. And then when you look at all the black heroes, I don't mean black soldiers, I mean black heroes in the American Revolution. We should know their names. We don't today. And and I, I mean, literally, here's here's a good indicator. When was the first black person elected to office in America? And the answer is 1641. When was the first black person elected to office in Great Britain? 1987. Oh, my God. When gosh. was the first black person elected to office in Russia? 2010. Wait a minute. 1641 for America? And we're the great racist nation in the world? What do you do with people like Wentworth Cheswell, black patriot founding father elected to office in 1768, re-elected for 49 years, held eight different political positions in New Hampshire, one of the founders of New Hampshire, and he's a black mm. patriot, and we hear nothing about him or about Thomas Hercules, who's elected to office. Um, Thomas Hercules elected in, in Pennsylvania. I mean, all these guys, I've got pictures of, of all these black heroes we had. And the reason mm. uh, here, these guys, there's there's Amazing. more than we can possibly handle here. But just um, let me start. You know, if, if, I, if I started going through the dozens of pictures I have here and asked Americans, name who this guy is it ain't yeah. gonna happen now the reason we have pictures of them is they're famous nobody made a mm. picture of somebody who wasn't famous that's why we right. know that <laughs> exactly. looked like. you know <laughs> exactly there's no picture of me there's no picture of you we, we weren't the guys nope. probably <laughs> who, unlikely yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know and so you know i just i'll just run through some more real quick here and it's the same thing who's that guy can't tell you we don't have a clue today we don't study him you know who is, who's this guy? Don't have a clue. He's painted in the founding era and he's painted because he's a famous guy. You know, we just keep going. Who's, who's this guy? You can't tell you, but see, we have stacks and stacks and stacks of these guys. Yes. You know, who's that again? No idea. So it's not like we have a shortage of black heroes. It's not like we're this great racist nation or whatever. Sure, we had racism because we got humans. You got racism everywhere, you got humans. Every nation in the world had racism. We got out of it faster than any other nation. Now, it ends up that we're the first, we have the first region in the world to end slavery, and that's New England. All the northern states Mm. had done so by 1804. Nobody in the world did it before Mm. New England. It took us till 1865 to get the South on board with that. So we become the mm. fourth nation in the world to ban slavery, but we're the first wow. nation to start the abolition movement in a serious political way. And that's as a result of the American war for independence. And and mm. I, I mean, there's just so many good things. To say. Yeah. yeah, we got flaws and you're supposed to tell the good, the bad, the ugly, but today we tell all the bad and the ugly
0: and we don't know yes. the good and I'll shut up cause I don't mean to be getting on, but I get passionate about this in a hurry. This is why I wanted you on the show, because in 10 minutes, you've basically undone most of the indoctrination that's going on in our schools. I mean, you know, the fact that you mentioned that in the schools, there was a Bible that was deemed and there was a proclamation about the Bible being used in schools. Uh, You know, you would never think that that was possible, but for well over 100 years, I think maybe over a couple hundred years, um, we were using the Bible in our classrooms and no one knows that. Um, yeah. I think let me stick on this, the, the issue of race just for a minute, because this is so important, I think, to the to the the future of our country. Right. Because we're being we're being divided around race. We're being divided, of course, around gender and around a whole bunch of ideologies. As someone who loves this country, it's been really hard to watch everything about this country from its founding historical documents being um, coming under attack. And race has been that fulcrum, right? Even in our schools today, uh, we're being taught this critical race theory, or as I like to yeah. say, critical racism theory. Some say that America is systemically racist and that the entire system has to be torn down and rebuilt because of that. Um, talk a little bit about the 1619 Project as it relates to our founding days and talk a little bit more about uh, whether or not we're irreparably racist.
1: Um, a couple things to, to note is this thing on on racism critical race theory um, i think many people recognize or at least have heard that that's related to marxism hmm. it's marxism that most people don't understand and marxism hmm. really takes the approach and it's a somewhat logical approach it's what probably a great athlete would say if you're if you're a boxer joe frazier muhammad ali whoever hmm. uh, mike tyson evander holyfield the more fights you have, the stronger you get and, and the better in shape you are and the better prepared you are to take on an enemy. Hmm. And that's Marxism. The more fights a nation can have, the stronger it's going to become. The, the more you wow. can divide it, the more it can survive those divisions, the stronger it's going become. Hmm. So its philosophy is divide, 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 fight, fight, fight. And of course, that's not a spiritual philosophy. Jesus said, hey, a house divided can't stand. Well, Marxism right. says the more you divide the house, the stronger it's going to become. So Marxism is always looking for ways to divide. They've been doing this in America for 100 years. I, you know, th- th- They got into the yeah. thing of the rich versus the poor. And th- they don't care what two groups it is. So they're always going to find two groups. So in the 60s, it was the rich versus the poor. But you know that didn't work too well because there's too much upward mobility in America. Uh, oh, let's no. try men versus women. Mm, that didn't work too well because that glass ceiling wasn't as as tough as they thought it was. Mm-hmm. And so we go through all these things on age and what they've come to is sexuality. That started catching on, sexuality, not, not gender, because male, female hadn't done it. They worked on that for 20, 30 years, couldn't get us to fight over that. But they start doing it over gender and then they've really mm-hmm. done it over race. And mm-hmm. so critical race theory is part of that to cause us to want to fight one another over the race issue. We, we want to get a good fight started because if you survive that fight, you'll be stronger for the next fight. That's Marxism. Mm-hmm. So first question I would have is why were we not teaching critical race theory 30 years ago? If it is part of our history, why didn't we teach it 30 years ago? Mm-hmm. And the reason is because we knew too much of our own history 30 years ago to buy into this race those pictures I just showed you. I can yeah. keep going for dozens of pictures. We had too many genuine black heroes to know mm-hmm. that we weren't racist. The, the American war for independence, Every battle in the American War for Independence was an integrated Mm -hmm. battle. It's a total volunteer army. And on average, the average black man served nine times longer than the average white man in the American Revolution. And it's a volunteer army. Why is that? Because they reenlisted on average nine times longer than white guys reenlisted. Now, we used to know that kind of stuff. We don't know that kind of stuff now. And so because we don't, we're open for all sorts of garbage. Now, you mentioned 1619. Let's, let's take that for a minute. 1619, yeah. this is when New York Times says America is defined by 1619 because 1619 is when, is when the slaves came to America. That's when slavery got started in America. So if you're looking at when slavery started in America, why not look at the Spanish colonies? Because in the 1520s and 1530s, you had mm. slavery in the Carolinas and the Spanish colonies. Or why not look at slavery in Florida in the Spanish colonies in the in
0: the 1540s and 1550s? Why, why
1: choose 1619? Because we had well, slavery- I, First longer.
0: of all, I never would have known that. I mean, I, I'm not aware of any mm-hmm. of that.
1: Oh, that's because we used to teach history and we no longer teach history now. We teach social studies, which is sociology and history. So yeah. we, don't, we don't cover history anymore. We cover sociology and, and all the social stuff. So, mm-hmm. and, and by the way, here's a document this document right here this is from 1610 it's a spanish document talking about how the slavery is fined in all the spanish colonies and in the north north america everywhere else in the caribbean so this beats 1619 all to heck so if you're going to take the position of 1619 and by the way, this is the, the announcement of 1619. This is the New York Times Magazine. And they say mm. 1619 is when slavery got started in America. Well, first off, you're wrong on that by about 100 years. Let's, let's back up wow. to the 1520s and 30s. Second, are, are you talking about English slavery starting in America? Because 1619 is when you had English colony in America. They came in 1606, mm. 1607, the Jamestown colony. Are, are you talking? Ja- oh, you're, you're talking Jamestown. So you're talking English slavery. Okay, time out on that too. Because in 1619, slavery was illegal in the Jamestown colony. Well, what happened? Wow. Well, you had uh, you had a, a English, two English privateer ships, and a privateer ship would attack other ships, take their cargo, and take the loot, and that's how they made their money, and they sell it. Well, they attacked. I mm. think it was a Portuguese um, ship that had slaves, and they were carrying the slaves to the Caribbean, and they attacked, and they took the ship, and they had these slaves on board, and the, the two ships split the <laughs> slaves, and. And one ship had 19 slaves out of of the split. And they said, what are we going to do with a bunch of slaves? We're supposed to be attacking ships. We need to drop these slaves somewhere. Closest place was Virginia. They came to Virginia and said, here, here's 19 slaves we want to sell you. They said, slavery is not legal here. We can't have slaves here. Well, we don't want them. You guys just take them. So they dropped the 19 slaves off. Now, that's when the first slaves arrived in America, but they weren't slaves. They had been slaves on the ship, but now they're in America. And, And what happened was they did... To the, those 19 slaves, what they did to whites, blacks, everybody else, you became an indentured servant. And if you worked for mm. a set number of years, the state then gave you your complete freedom and a piece of property that you own. The state made you a landowner. So these 19 become free landowners in Virginia. One of wow. those 19, a guy named Anthony Johnson, who is one of those, we believe, one of those original slaves, he becomes very wealthy. He gets a lot of land, a lot of property, and he starts indenturing mm. people for him I'll, I'll bring you from spain or france or wherever to america mm. you work for me seven years i'll pay for all your expenses to get here it's really expensive to sell here i'll cover it all and then you get to be a free landowner so you work for me wow. so it's not slavery it's indentured and that's what whites and blacks and everybody else did and as this is going on there's one guy named john caser who is indentured to him and anthony johnson really doesn't think that john caser did a very good job of working for him for those seven years. And so he says, you know, th- this guy's really pretty lazy and by all accounts, he probably was pretty lazy. But what happens is a black man, Anthony Johnson, goes to court in Virginia and says, look, this guy didn't pay me back what, what I put into him. Would you just let me own this guy for the rest of his life and, and that way he can pay me back? And the court says, sure, you can own him. That's the first occasion wow. of slavery in America, 1653, wow. when a black man sues to own another black man in America. And you're going to say the 1690 Project defines America? The start of slavery in America Gosh. when a black man sues on another black man? I don't think we've been getting that the last several years, but that's actually what happened. And and by the way, you can also go to the second colony, the Pilgrims. When the Pilgrims <laughs> landed in America, they did not put up with slavery at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, in 1641, they passed a law that made it a capital offense to engage in, in slavery, slave what they called man-stealing, and they quoted... The book of exodus as is, is part of that on the man stealing and then in 1646 wow. a slave ship arrived at plymouth and when that slave ship arrived in plymouth um it's interesting the slave owners were arrested and put in jail and all the slaves were freed and the people of massachusetts took up a contribution from all the other people said look these guys were brought here illegally let's let's get a ship and send them back wherever they want to go so the people of massachusetts paid to send those slaves back to any place they wanted to go because they thought it was wrong for them to be in slavery. That's the anti-slavery side of America that we never hear anything about. All they want to cover is a slavery side in Virginia,
0: which is not anywhere
1: close to the whole story.
0: It's amazing. I mean, you're, you're unveiling, you're revealing history that no one teaches anymore, at least not in our system. And I think that's one of the, the aspects that's most troubling about our culture today is that if you want to change the culture, you change the schools, right? You, you have to go back to what we're teaching everyone. And our school systems today seem to be at kind of the epicenter of indoctrinating our kids with what I would say are anti-faith ideologies, anti-family for sure, uh, and anti-American ideologies. And they don't teach our history except for in a negative way. In fact, so many of our young people are, are coming through our system with a real hatred for America. What What's happening, and what can we do about it?
1: Yeah, we, we, I mean, historically, we go back to the 1920s when progressives took over education in the 1920s. They instituted five pedagogical changes. Pedagogy means the philosophy of education. Prior to the 1920s, for 300 years, the object of education was to teach you how to think. In the 1920s, they said, no, the object of education is to make you learners. You need to be lifelong learners. If you're a learner, you're a receiver. If you're a thinker, you Mm. feed yourself. If you're a learner, you need somebody else to give you. It's the difference between giving someone a fish and teaching them how to fish. And we were in the midst of the Industrial Revolution at that time. And really, the progressives said, we need people on the assembly line who just take orders. We don't need people who think for themselves. They just need to do what Mm. they're told. And that's what we did is we turned education over. And so we no longer ask questions. We no longer dig deep and say, wait a minute, let me check the other side of that. Mm. If we see it on a meme, if we see it somewhere else, we, we take it. And if you take, it's striking to me as an educator, former principal, I do a lot of work mm. in education, been appointed in a lot of states by state boards, of education, governors, legislatures, et cetera, to do history and social studies centers. So I see what's in the schools. And it's very striking to me that, that what we do in education now is not only do we not teach thinking, we go an opposite direction. We just don't teach at all. And, and let me give an example. Mm. Um, mm. Right in, in 1962, America was number one in the world in literacy. Mm. 20 years after wow. that, we'd fallen to number 65 in the world in literacy. So, in 20 years, we go to number 65 in the world. There's only 23 major industrial nations in the world. We're below the industrial nations. And right now, we're back up to about 45 or 47. And so, we're, we're the bottom of all the industrial nations. Um, for the last 15 years, 19% of kids who graduate. From public school in America are illiterate. They can't even read their own diploma. So we're talking about nineteen percent illiteracy rate over the last fifteen years, and we spend that's one in five. What's that? That's
0: one. That's, that's one in five.
1: five. Well, you you may have seen just a few weeks ago it came out in Baltimore that in Baltimore the high school students in Baltimore seventy two percent of them cannot read above a third grade level. That's high. My that's three fourths of your high school seniors in Baltimore. Now parents don't know that because what happened is you don't, progressives don't like being measured. They don't like results because their results don't work well. They've always got these great ideas. You know, let's get socialism instead of free market. It never works well. It doesn't work out. So they're always for change, even if it doesn't work. And that's what we've seen in education. You know, we had outcome based education that didn't work. Let's go to common core. That didn't work. Let's go to whole language phonics. That didn't work. Let's go to we we try something every 15 years, whether it works or not. We don't test it before it works. So what what happens is you've got all this high literacy. And when you look at math and science, America Mm. comes for the last 25 years, America has come in dead last in the world in math and science testing, what we call STEM. So we're way at the bottom. But we don't know that because what happened was about 30 years ago, we used to be able to compare the states one with another. We say, you know, Texas is Mm. 43rd in the nation in reading, but it's 23rd in math and it's 18th in science, whatever. You can't do that anymore. You can't compare states. And so every state has its own measurement now, and they all look wow. great. Parents think kids, my kids are I love this. In in Texas, we call them superior schools, and we have bumper uh-huh. stickers. My kid goes to a superior school. A superior school in Texas means that 60% of the kids can read at grade level. 60% read at grade level? Are you kidding? That would be a D in the old days. 60% yes. score, that's a failing grade. A failing and that makes a superior school. You know so we we pump in all this propaganda and we feel mm. good about ourselves you know we we may be stupid but we feel good about it and that's yeah. that's really what we've done in education <laughs> is we don't even know what we don't know anymore and we know yeah. so little of what we don't know that we make up stuff like the 1619 project and we think, oh right. that's good scholarly
0: academic stuff
1: no it's not right.
0: this is pablum nonsense and we just don't recognize <laughs> it anymore Boy, is that true. I mean, it, it's kind of like in, inside the church when people don't know the Bible, they become biblically illiterate, yeah. which I would argue we're probably in that condition as well. The same is true in our schools. My father was the uh, superintendent of schools at a, at a big district in upstate New York for many, many years. So I grew to really appreciate the educational process. I probably felt a little more pressure than, than most yeah. to, to perform well academically. He would always correct my grammar. I don't think we do that anymore either. No. Um, our schools, unfortunately, in many ways have, have turned into uh, an indoctrination center, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're teaching and they're they're creating a lot of confusion and, and they're uh, pitting the parents, they're pitting the parents against the kids now, like they're separating us and they're saying that the parents don't really have a role in that education anymore. What do we do about that? How do we re-engage? I know there's a lot of groups around the country, many of whom we have relationships with that are, that are pushing back against that.
1: Well. I- I think you, you alluded to it part, Jimmy, when you said we're pretty, pretty biblically illiterate right now, and we are. Yeah. Uh, right now, only 9% of Christians read the Bible on a daily basis. Uh, polling that came out this week shows that 20% of Americans believe the Bible is the Word of God and 29% of Americans believe the Bible is fiction and made-up stories and fables, etc., So we have more Americans who believe the Bible is just a complete crock than who believe it's true. And those who believe it's true don't read it very often. Only one out of 16 Americans can actually put Bible verses beside issues that we face today on a regular basis. So we are pretty illiterate. Mm. And if we knew the Bible, we would know a lot more about parental rights. We would know a lot more about a lot of rights. And and that's where we had all these court cases like in in 1925, Pierce Society Sisters 43, Myers, Nebraska, et cetera. Mm where it says it's the fundamental right of a parent to direct the education upbringing of the children. Now, if you are in a secular progressive mindset, the attitude is only professionals know what's good for you. And these untaught parents, they don't have a clue what they're talking about. We professionals need it. And that's why you find that, for example, if you're in Germany and you homeschool in Germany, you will Mm. go to jail because the kids belong to the state. And you'll find that all over Europe, you take any secular nation, the kids belong to the government they don't belong to the parents yeah it's only in yeah. biblical nations that you have the concept mm. of parents raising the kids not the state raising the kids so it's the more amazing. biblically illiterate we become the more open we are to control and see you lose your former government uh, founding fathers mm. actually pointed out our former government and it's not a democracy article 4 section 4 of the constitution forbids That's america right. from becoming a democracy founding fathers have extensive writings on why they hate democracy. They love yes. a Republican form of government. What's a Republican form of government? A Republican form of government is one that's put in the hands of the people themselves, we the people. progressives. It's no, no, we're the experts. We know what you need in government. And part of the problem we have with education today goes back to, again, we had this pedagogical change where we created learners, mm. learners not thinkers. But if I take you back to the scriptures, and I take you just to Jesus in, in the New Testament and the four gospels, jesus asked over 330 questions in the new go- in, in the gospels in the new testament mm-hmm. 330 que- he didn't answer many but he's asking questions all the time yeah. we don't ask questions anymore we don't teach kids to ask questions we don't teach kids to question what's the source in that where'd you get that information is there another side that you haven't told me about that do i need to investigate yeah. this more it's just like oh i didn't know that and we just become learners yes. and we soak in anything you tell us so we get indoctrinated and that's where indoctrination yeah. comes from and the best antidote to that literally is being biblically literate. You learn to become mm-hmm. a thinker. You learn to question. You, you learn Proverbs 18, 17 that says one side sounds good until you hear the other. That's why we have <laughs> an true. adversarial system in law. You have prosecution and defense. If we only heard the prosecution side, we would fry everybody. If we only heard the defense yes. side, we would free everybody. You have to find where the truth is between those. We don't teach that anymore. And that's a biblical concept. Mm -hmm. So I really do point to the growing secularism as one of the bigger problems we have with education and with government and with economics and spending. We're into modern monetary theory now. Modern monetary Mm -hmm. theory was introduced in America in 1934. It's part of the socialist Marxist stuff. And it says debt is good. You can prosper if you're in debt. And the more debt you have, if you'll keep running up the numbers, it's really good for you, which is what we're doing. We've gone from what was $8 trillion debt to $32 trillion debt in, in two years. Are you kidding me? Oh, yeah. But they oh, believe yeah. that that literally gives you prosperity when you're in debt. My goodness, mm. where did you get that? See, this is the indoctrination we're going through. Nobody's asking the questions anymore. And, and yeah. we got to get away from that, quite frankly.
0: Yeah, well, it's incredible that you said that in all of these secular nations that the children are really the property of the state, right? And that's why, that's why you hear politicians, even in America, progressive politicians, say that the parents should have no role in the education right. of their kids. And, and then we have our we're the experts. You don't know we're yeah. the experts. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Follow the science. I know we've we've had a, <laughs> a fun couple of years of following the science yeah. as well. I how did that work out? And first. then I think. <laughs> yeah, it, it, not so well. It didn't bother me at all because I, I figured whatever they were saying was scientific was probably not too accurate. But yeah, uh, that's another that's another topic for us. But, you know, then we have the highest ranking officials in our country uh, claiming that parents who show up at board meetings to contest the curriculum or to protest against the things that their kids are being taught. They're labeled as domestic terrorists. And then a whole a whole part of our government is unleashed on them. You know, another three letter organization in order to investigate them as domestic terrorists. It, it feels to me, David, that we're not that far off from a secular nation. So, what it feels like the times are relatively urgent, right? What role can the church and people of faith play in restoring the American idea and ideals and revitalize the culture? Uh, first thing, people of
1: faith have got to get back in the Bible and quit listening to say well i went to church i heard the scriptures I, i'm a christian that doesn't mean you know the bible jesus mm-hmm. in matthew 4 4 says uh, that man doesn't live by bread alone he lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of god and we're yes. also told to pray for daily bread and we have spiritual bread pray for daily bread if we only ate a physical meal as often as we ate a spiritual meal most of us would have been mm-hmm. dead a long time ago we ought to start saying, you know what? I'm not gonna eat a physical meal until I eat a spiritual meal. When I read the mm-hmm. scriptures, then I'm gonna go get a meal and start making spiritual food a, a requirement. You know, Start treating it like you treat physical food. We don't live without physical food. You don't live without spiritual food. You just think you do, you just exist. Yeah. And so until you get back yeah. to being serious about spiritual food, and if you really wanna get serious about spiritual food, start memorizing scriptures. Because like that, yes. that speech I talked about earlier from Ben Franklin, that's the, that speech he gave where he, in 14 sentences, quoted 14 Bible verses is the only speech he gave at the Constitutional Convention that he did not write out. He just did that off the top wow. of his head. It flowed out of his heart. He was just so frustrated with what was going on. He just started speaking. What came out of his heart was scriptures. Why? Jesus says, Matthew twelve thirty four, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It was mm. coming out of, his, out of his mouth because it was in his heart. And that's what Christians have to do, is they have to get serious about God's Word, start hiding it in their heart, as we're told in Psalm 119, Mm -hmm. start memorizing Scripture again. And and by the way, I was just showing a church uh, just on Sunday. I said, here's public school records from 1816 in the state of New Jersey. In the Mm -hmm. state of New Jersey in 1816, the first and second graders in all public schools memorized the Gospel of John. Now, that's first and second graders memorized the Gospel of John in all public schools in New Jersey in 1816. What adult do you know that's memorized the Gospel of
0: John today? And that's first graders. It's, well, the, and that's a stunning revelation, right? I mean, there's there's probably 98% of all Americans don't believe that the Bible was ever used in the classroom, and yet yeah. it, was a, it was a key source of our educational system for literacy and for other things, and for history, actually. It's so... The fact that we're illiterate about our history, the fact that we're relatively illiterate spiritually with the Bible, that we we lack the power to engage in the culture. Right. We lack the courage to engage yeah. in the culture because we don't know what we're talking about.
1: Yeah. And, and I think courage, courage is it. Yeah. Part of it. Part of it. A lot of people have the right convictions. Uh, they just yeah. <laughs> I had to say that they haven't been frustrated enough. Now they're getting frustrated with schools and we're seeing school boards flip and change. I mean, what we saw in yes. Denver, what we saw in four school boards in Colorado Springs, what we've seen in Boise, uh, what we've seen in Wichita, what we've seen in Houston, what we've seen in Dallas, what we've seen all mm. over the country. We're seeing these, these school boards flip. People are getting frustrated yes. now. Well, you shouldn't have had to wait until you got frustrated. You should have got in and gotten in right. earlier and, and you would have saved a bunch of kids, a lot of grief, but yes. it's, I don't think the numbers are inferior. I think what's happened, and and we're seeing this in polling, is 77% of traditional value Americans now self-censor because of the climate. They don't want to get doxxed. They don't want to feel like a Supreme Court justice who's going to have people following around in in restaurants and stay outside their house and protest. And and they don't want to get confronted. And and I know that if I say this, I'm going to be in Facebook jail or I'm going to get deplatformed or whatever, and I'm going to get people mad at me, and I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. And so there is a vast majority of Americans who still believe these things, but who will not talk about them. And yeah. at some point we have got to get some courage. Um, yes. You know, as I look, uh, for me, I believe in the Bible and therefore I believe there is a heaven. I believe there is a hell, both places. Yes. And Bible says there's both places. And it's interesting that in Revelation 21, eight, when it talks about hell, it talks about who goes there and it's, it's murderers mm-hmm. and it's perjurers and all these bad dudes. But the first ones on the list, it says, are the cowards and the fearful. Now, wow. everybody else goes to hell for what they do. Cowards and fearful go for what they didn't do. They didn't have backbone. Wow. And I think that that's a significant commentary that, that God puts cowards and fearful in there with murderers and perjurers. And for that's us amazing. not to be willing to stand for the truth, even if it causes us to be uncomfortable, I think that's a real problem and at some point, And that's why, again, getting back to the Bible, Jesus yeah. was not a coward in any way, shape, fashion, or form and he spoke the truth and it offended a lot of people but he kept doing it and he just spoke the truth in love as we're told in Ephesians 4 we got to get back to that ourselves or we'll give our nation away mm-hmm. to a minority while we in the majority are, are tying our own hands and putting ourselves in jail
0: yeah gosh it's just amazing you know and and I do think competence leads to confidence right the more you know the bible the more comfortable you are with the truth yeah. of the scripture the easier it is for you to make a courageous defense of it and to stand up for it. The, the better we know our history, the more competent we are with handling history, especially as it relates to the heroes of our country, yeah. that it's not just these white men. It, it actually is a, an incredible array of people with a lot of different backgrounds, colors, races, you name it. The better we know history, the more courageous we are in defending it. Um, encourage our listeners as we as we wrap up what are one or two things uh, that, that they can do in their every day to get back in this game, to, to make a difference, to defend freedom and keep America strong?
1: One thing is read something out of the Bible every day. At least get a snack out of the Bible once a day. <laughs> Memorize a Bible verse at least once a week. Whatever mm-hmm. they are, just find one that inspires you or informs you. Memorize one a week. And then start reading old biographies. If you go to books.google.com, There's Mm -hmm. millions of public domain books on there. Go back and read maybe a biography of John Quincy Adams. He died in 1848. Read the biographies written about him in in 1849. George Washington Mm -hmm. died in 1799. Read the biographies written about him in 1800 by the eyewitnesses who Mm -hmm. knew him. Go back and start Mm -hmm. seeing history from that standpoint. Go back and and read Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery. It'll blow Mm -hmm. your socks off to see what he said in 1901. Just start reading old biographies and not old history books, old biographies. I'm convinced that God made us to respond to stories. In the Bible, Mm. we don't know what year David killed Goliath, and God didn't put it in there because that wasn't the point of the story. The point of the story Mm. was the story. It's what happened. Go back and read stories. Read biographies. It'll change your life. And so Mm. those three things I would recommend for anybody at any point in time, that's a good way to start getting turned around. Fourth thing would be get involved Mm. in local elections. You may be frustrated with the President, Mm. Supreme Court, whatever, doesn't matter. Usually only two to 4% of local citizens vote in local
0: elections. That's where you can turn things around is at the local level. Wow, so true. Well, that is a super way to conclude. I'll I'll tell you, um, our audience got a history lesson. I think it's gonna deepen their roots and deepen their appreciation for our biblical history and our values. David, thank you so much. We're going to have links to your website, to all of your products, to all of the, the uh, educational materials you have. It's, it's an amazing array of resources for our listeners to get up to speed. Thank you so much, my friend. God bless you. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for all you do. God bless. You bet.